Since March 2020, collectively our experiences, relationships, and framework for understanding our day-to-day lives have changed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a society, we're navigating these challenges, seeing new opportunities, and facing the fear and beauty of the unknown as we adapt. Lore Arts has been collecting stories and talking to artists, farmers, academics, community leaders, and members who share their experiences and perspectives during the pandemic. I'm Fanling Suen. And I'm Ali Roback. And, and this, this is Pause. Pause. This conversation was recorded in June 2020. Today we interview Ken Hood, who has been studying, practicing, and teaching meditation mind training for 30 years in the community of Guelph. Many in Guelph know Ken from the bookshelf, and that's where I met Ken several years ago. Since last fall, I've been attending his weekly meditation drop-in classes at Arrive Yoga and Mindful Center, a studio space that he runs with his partner Jacqueline in downtown Guelph. Since the pandemic, Amongst other courses and offerings, Ken has continued to host online meditation and inquiry sessions via Zoom by donation on Wednesdays and Sundays. For more information, visit arriveyoga.ca or agoodheart.ca. Hi, Ken. Welcome. Hi, Fanling. Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you as well. How are you? Um, Yeah, having a nice day. It's kind of a slow start. I got up. I did my yoga meditated, had some breakfast, a little Facebooking, and now I'm here. Right on. Um, so where are you now? Um, so yeah, so I, as you said, I live in Guelph. I live on the top of a little hill, which I just recently discovered is a drumlin. Um, and it kind of, it's it's on Grove Street, which looks over the ward, which is like my favorite neighborhood in, in Guelph. Mm, that's nice. Yeah, Guelph is definitely drumlin town, hills everywhere. Yeah. So why don't you share with us a little bit more about yourself and, and your journey? Okay. When I was around 18, I had an existential crisis and my sense of God disappeared one night. And as a result, I was thrust into what I call my existential crisis. Yeah, I went suddenly from being a, a good little Anglican boy to an atheist. And, and that sort of pushed me on to a journey of trying to, to rediscover the meaning of my life. So from there, um, this went over for probably four or five years. And I went from... Uh, an atheist eventually to an agnostic, which is to say, don't really know what's what the situation is, to an existentialist. So uh, existence precedes meaning, so I had to figure out the meaning of my life. And then from there, I started reading books about Buddhism in my early 20s. And I was really connecting with that, and that um, was starting to make sense. And about two years after starting to reading those Buddhist books, um, a Tibetan Lama came to Guelph. And he was giving a public talk at, at what, what is still a new age health food store. So I went and I saw him and, and I felt a connection. And But I, I, I'd been struggling to put together my own worldview that whole time. And I wasn't wanting to give up sort of my personal authority. So it took me about two years to decide to become his student. But eventually I decided to. And it, it, it worked out really wonderfully. Mm. And from there, I slowly um, put together my worldview. It's still critical. I admit I can't necessarily... Um, take on all of the aspects of Tibetan Buddhism, and I and I and I do include other um, forms of understanding like Stoicism, um, other forms of Buddhism, Taoism, um, and then and then increasingly recently neuroscience. 
Soon after meeting him, though, he also suggested I start teaching, uh, which kind of surprised me because I didn't have a lot of experience at that time. And this was over 30 years ago now. I think it's like 32 years ago. But we started a group. And there's maybe three or four of us. And then from there, we quickly moved up to a group of about 30 or 40 people. That went on for seven years. And then my wife, Jacqueline, and I were going to India to do a pilgrimage and retreat. And it was like, oh, I'm so sorry, guys. I won't be here to lead the group. I guess it's going to end. And um, But they kept going, and they're still going. So uh, it was a, it was a really amazing. lovely, anarchic uh, little group of people, like uh, a little sangha, uh, and they practice in each other's homes, and it's still going. I, th- I think that's so wonderful. So how did, how did you learn to, to teach and guide? Was it like trial by fire or, or getting advice uh, from your teacher or... Yeah, it was a, a mixture of things. Uh, it was um, so definitely my primary um, foundation is my relationship to my teacher, and 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 within that, it's within the Galug lineages, which is one of the the four main lineages of Tibet. Um, but I've I've listened to a lot of teachings by Theravada teachers. So people, I don't know if you know Jack Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg. They're well-known Western teachers who, um, several of them went to the East. Some of them became like monks. None of them are monks now or nuns, um, but they're all, they've been all teaching for 30 or 40 years. So now they're the elders of the Western Buddhist community. So mainly Theravada and my teacher and then trial by fire. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and trial by practice too, you know, doing the Mm -hmm. practice, uh, studying, um, and then just being with people and, you know, relating my experience to their experience, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah, if you could just tell us kind of why meditate, you know, for someone who's maybe from a perspective who's never dove into it before, they kind of read it on a peripheral, from your perspective, um, yeah, why is this important? First, what I've seen is mostly people come to meditation for two reasons, and there's a Buddhist idea a concept called dukkha, which usually is translated as suffering, but more often means dissatisfactoriness. And so I find either people are actually suffering, maybe they're grieving or, or they have anxiety or depression or something like that, uh, or physical pain, chronic physical pain, or, you know, loss of a relationship, that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, or uh, they are dissatisfied. And this is maybe not quite the right word, but it's like, they want to elevate themselves. So it's like they want to elevate their game. They want to be sharper. They want to be smarter. They want to be brighter. They want to learn more, that kind of thing. And then sort of general reasons for meditating would be, I don't know how far to go into this, but basically some of the root things that happen are you can cultivate a calm and peaceful mind, which in and of itself is a really lovely thing. In fact, I actually think it is the foundation of happiness. Um, The second thing is... um, you can develop a stronger focus, like just the ability to be attentive and focus, which in an age of distraction has become so critical. Um, you can develop a mind that is brighter and more vivid and takes in a more fresh, granular data in real time. You can cultivate uh, positive mental states like loving kindness, equanimity, joy. Uh, you can weaken and uproot negative mental states like hatred and fear and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, which then translate into, as an experience that then you can, you will generally suffer less and you'll be more happy. There's growing amount of evidence that meditation is and mindfulness and those kind of practices are really good 
for supporting mental health. They're complementary to other mental health practices like psychotherapy and that kind of thing. So they're not the same thing. It's very important to say that, but they're very supportive of it. Uh, it also contributes to good physical health. It can lower blood pressure. It slows down the fraying of the telomeres, which means it slows down aging. Um, uh, it makes us more resilient. It helps us to learn better. You know, it helps us to be present to the good things of life, to the people that we love and that kind of thing. And then from there too, to say that uh, then there are also higher order benefits. Um, for instance, Sam Harris talks about secular transcendent states, like states of awe and a sense of oneness. Mm. And then within the Buddhist frame, we could speak about states of awakening or becoming liberated. So. There's real, or just a huge range, and it can also make you a better tennis player. It can make you a better heart surgeon, or it can make you a, a better, a, a more capable entrepreneur. You know, so yeah. um, because everything comes out of the mind, a small uh, cultivation of the mind can have a huge impact on just about every aspect of your life. That's really fascinating. I mean, it it's such a from the outside when someone's witnessing somebody meditating, it's such a simple act, like action mm -hmm. of coming, sitting down closing your eyes and all of that kind of generates from that. It's so, um, and, and also challenging. I mean, I, from my experience, just kind of closing your eyes, um, initially like so much noise can come about and, or come to be from, from mm -hmm. the day. And, um, can you, can you kind of set the scene for someone who's never attended one of your, uh, community meditation sessions and what that's like? Sure. So there's, there's been two main ways. One is uh, pre-pandemic and then there's post-pandemic. So um, pre-pandemic, uh, we have a beautiful space on the second floor of a, an old built, like an over a hundred year old building on Wyndham Street in the downtown. I, I really miss this now because the groups have been around for 30 years. Some people know each other. People are chatting with each other. It actually even gets a little raucous with everybody talking to each other and and then if there's a new person, I, I can be there and I'll notice who they are and, and introduce myself and ask, ask them about their experience, if they've meditated before, if they haven't, then I give them some quick instructions so that they can just jump in with everybody else. Mm. And then we would sit for a meditation. Um, we sit in a circle. And one of the things that I think is important is that when you're meditating, you should be comfortable. The mm. goal isn't to suffer and to sit cross-legged in a way uh, you know, we're, we're many of us are Westerners or have been raised in Westernized culture. So we, we haven't sat on the floor or, or squatted or do, done those kind of things. So we're stiffer, usually on our hips and our knees and that kind of thing. So getting people comfortable and then we settle in. Sundays we have a 30-minute sit and I do a little bit of cueing through this. Like about every five minutes I will welcome people to come back to the present moment, that kind of thing. And then I ring a bell at the end. And then I, I always say, are there any comments, observations, insights, or difficulties with this particular set? And then um, usually what happens at that point, there's usually a pause and then people reflect on their experience. It's my favorite part. And, it, and to me, it's, it's as important as the actual meditation because this is where we tease out insights from, with each other. Often somebody will have said something and then there's five or six different points of view to help everybody explore within their own experience mm. uh, and, and find an understanding as it applies to themselves. And then I, I see my job as a teacher here primarily is a facilitator of drawing out the collective intelligence of the, of the circle. Uh, and not one person uh, has more knowledge than that circle. Mm -hmm. There's so much care I notice in your 
preparation and, and facilitation and how you kind of delicately hold this post-meditation portion of, of inquiry and and how do you prepare for something like that? Or if can you even prepare? Yeah, that no, that's a really um, good question. <clears throat> now that I've been at it for a long time, it's, it's much easier. Um, but I've run groups where the first comment is there was a woman whose 16-year-old daughter got into a van and 10 minutes later she got a call that the child had been killed in a car accident, mm -hmm. right? So, and she was shaking like a leaf. And so it could be something like that or it could be, you know, more of the kind of things that we usually talk about. So on any given Sunday or Wednesday, I usually, the night before, I, 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 I'm pretty quiet. I, I generally do yoga and meditation before the sit. Mm. Uh, I've done prep for, for, for that other, the teaching component to come in. Uh, I often will have a poem on hand, um, that kind of thing. So mostly it's keeping my own mind heart as grounded as I can. And then, and then that's my main job is to hold the mental emotional space of the circle. There can be quite a bit of vulnerability when a group comes together and sits in silence in group meditation. What are your thoughts on this? What are your observations from your experience of leading and facilitating group meditation? Yeah, yeah, no, um, that's a good question, Fanling. Um, and it's actually very profound. Um, you know, when people show up to class, um, they're, they're often in distress or they are vulnerable. And so one thing that I always make clear is you don't have to speak. That's really an important thing. Um, also, you can come and you can cry. Um, people have done that as well. Uh, and that if you're crying and it's too overwhelming, you can get up during the meditation and, and go and do what you need to do, whether it's go for a little walk and come back or whether it's just to head home and take care of yourself. And I've always been struck in the groups and honored by the fact that people will share very tender things amongst a group of people they don't know very well. And so, yeah, certainly as a, the teacher facilitator at that moment, it's a very delicate thing. And um, one thing that I like about how our, the culture of our groups is that um, nobody lectures anybody, you know, uh, or tells them what they should do. Usually they'll speak about their own vulnerability and then maybe make suggestions from that space, but not um, put it on that person. But it's true. I, I did therapy for a few years, and uh, there's a, th a therapist. Uh, he, sa he said to me that the work of therapy is to learn to be yourself in the presence of others. Mm. And I think that's also true with uh, the meditation groups. Mm. That's something I wanted to tease out a little bit more is um, you touched on it about how when we meditate together as a group, you're kind of holding each other can you can describe a little bit of the difference of why one would meditate in solitude and the community that comes together when you meditate together in silence and those differences? Right. Yeah. So we, I think we've touched on a lot of the benefits of, of sitting together. Mm -hmm. you, we, we find insight together. There's some solidarity. We, there's a bit of a shared meaning of what we're doing. So there's a support that way. We're held in place by each other. Um, and with solitude, and it's interesting, and it's a little, it's a more complex thing to talk about because 
when I think of solitude, I don't necessarily just think of the half an hour. I mean, that could be, that could be, you could do that in a group and you could do that alone. And they are two different experiences, but it becomes much more pronounced over longer periods of time. So say a day or a week. I find solitude to be very powerful. And, and, I, and I, I would say even in the last several years um, where digital life's and, and having a, a, a cell phone and that kind of thing, now people are connected constantly almost all day from morning to night, or they can be, mm-hmm. you know, with an infinite scroll and constantly uh, being exposed to other people's mental output. Once a year, I go into retreat for a week by myself, and I find it so powerful now. And I'm not bad with my digital life, but when I go in, I don't take my phone, I don't have a computer, I don't listen to the radio or TV, I might take a couple of books. And I've cut myself off from the compulsion of my digital life. And I find that very powerful. And I think a lot of people would benefit from that. And it would give them perspective about that question. Because our digital life, it kind of seems benign on the surface. But I'm sure you guys know that the whole question of the attention economy and how social engineers have made websites stickier so that we go back more and more. And people check their phones two or 300 times a day. You're always tethered to another neuro connection. Always tethered. Always tethered. Yeah. Exactly. And so one person's definition of solitude, and I, I'm sorry I can't quote them because I found it so powerful, was solitude is the freedom from other people's mental output. Mm. Uh, on top of that also, you know, getting out of the whole need to, to be pleasing to other people or wanting other people to be pleasing to you or, or just having to stay attuned to everybody all the time. And then just stepping away from your tasks and the general urgencies of everyday life. That helps to really calm the body, heart, and mind. It's so interesting. When I go into retreat, it's like I drop six levels. Uh, just on that alone, usually the first day or two, I'm sleeping. Like It's like my body's letting mm-hmm. go. And then my mind starts to also let go. So that's all very strengthening for meditation. It's also just a relief and a release, right? Your body's relaxing. Your mind's not being as driven. And uh, your heart starts to open up. But also, and this is something that's, uh, um, it's not something you'll find in the Buddhist books, but it's been, it's evolved in my, in my life. So um, as much as I'm a Buddhist, and I, I, you know, I'm a Buddhist now, I don't know what I'll be next. But the other thing that I find very important is the idea of the unconscious. And, and that when our energy is not going out to the external all the time, it starts to go internal. And the unconscious starts to get activated. And there's these very deep structures that are related to our intuition, related to you know original creative impulses, uh, dreaming at night, uh, maybe waking dreams, like you know those stories that run through your mind. And so in the afternoons now on retreat, um, this is very un-Buddhist of me. I usually read a little bit of Jung. I put a pot of coffee on and I journal and I write down any dreams I've had, mm. and then I listen for um, these fresh creative impulses and perspectives. Mm. Are there any comparisons with the solitude imposed by by the pandemic? Yeah, it's something I've been struck by uh, in that notion that as we get quieter and our energy, instead of going outward, starts to become go inward. So not being so busy outwardly, going to the workplace, going out shopping, going mm-hmm. to movie theaters, that energy is going in. And I get a sense that, for instance, one thing is that it's almost like a dream state people are in. You know, it's like it's like time is weird and space is weird and who am I? And 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 then I've had, you know, I ran into one friend who said, 
and I'm re really seeing myself much more clearly, and, and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, uh, there's there's subconscious patterns too. Like unconscious is really unconscious. Subconscious is maybe patterns from our childhood that we stay busy enough that we kind of uh, tread water over mm -hmm. it. But then if we're not as busy, then that sub uh, that subconscious pattern comes up and we we see it. So I I get a feeling there is at some some degree of people being aware of of this deeper sense of themselves. Someone had shown me this um, video recently, and I forget the name of the woman, but she was describing how, kind of paralleling the, the pandemic to a portal and just like transitioning into uh, a different space, almost like a chrysalis of sorts. Yes, so, you know, we're in the pandemic right now. Uh, it's obviously precipitating a financial crisis and an economic crisis, and then there's the Black Lives Matter crisis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then in the and to me the bigger frame uh w which is the environmental crisis so i don't think we're going back to normal and and i and i don't think we should go back to normal personally um and we need to do a very deep transformation and actually i i do feel that practices like meditation will play a key role in that because we need to be able to change our minds to uproot the mental pollution of racism and we need to cultivate a sense of connection with others and with the natural world and that kind of thing. And we need that, we need the inner transformation so that we become the pe people who are uh, capable of leading the change and actually being the change. Mm -hmm, and that, mm -hmm. and, it, and it requires, I think, really deep inner work to be able to do that and particularly to be, say, a leader in that kind of work. How have your meditation sessions helped either your immediate group or your students or people in your broader community kind of benefit from from this in regards to the pandemic? One thing is, particularly with uh, um, either elderly people or people who are in a, in a small bubble or, or, or living by themselves without, you know, anybody to be with and hug and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I think having both the yoga and the meditation available has helped um, reduce their sense of isolation for one thing I think that's been a very important part of it the second thing would be maybe that well certainly people you know in in the sessions and I think you've been there for some of them mm -hmm. we've been able to talk about what people are feeling and going through um, for instance I've, I've noticed people are sharing uh, that they're either cycling every day multiple emotional states up and down and that kind of thing or 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 in a broader cycle of of emotional cycling you know at the beginning it was this way and then, and then for the second month it was this way and now I'm feeling this way um, one thing that happened to me and I, I found other people related to it was I was having a feeling and I couldn't understand what it was it was very amorphous and and um, and I came across this phrase a strange melancholy and I I've, I, I figured it really struck me, and I, I thought, that captures how I feel. And then I was reading an article in the Harvard Business Review about uh, grief, and grief particularly during this time, and that um, we're grieving things that we've already missed because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. In this moment, as we look out at the world, uh, there are things we're missing currently. You know, we can't go on a trip, or we can't do a class we wanted to do, or that kind of thing, or hug, you know, our mother, um, yes. uh, that kind of thing. Um, and then there's the, we also, I think, have anticipatory grief because we know like 
say some of the beloved businesses in downtown Guelph that we've gone to. I know several that are, you know, 39 Carden Street is gone now and Truth and Beauty is gone. And so that's a lot of grief. And, and so I think one of the things that can help in a group is it helps people feel their experience, you know, get quiet enough to be able to feel it. And then also to be able to name it and define it and mm-hmm. have a relationship to it. And then even from there, you know, well, even like a witness to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also just to hear that other people, you know, I think one of the main things that happened out of inquiry, uh, whether with the pandemic or otherwise, is I think a lot of time people think, oh, I must be crazy. You know, this is happening in my mind. I can't believe this is happening in my mind. And I'm, I'm sure nobody else has this happen to them. And then they'll be in a meditation group and practically in the first session, somebody goes, oh, yeah, my, oh, my, my, yeah, I was having this weird thought or I was seeing the color purple or, the, you know, <laughs> and then people go, okay, so my experience isn't, isn't abnormal. It's, it's, it's normal. And, and um, so they can get, they, first they can contextualize their inner life because where else do you f- learn about it, right? Like, we don't learn about our inner life really anywhere else and certainly not in a, in a group setting. Well, it helps through like the stories of others. It's like helps to inform your own understanding of what's happening. Yeah. 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 Their, their experience and you can compare it against yours. And, and, and then also we talk about antidotes, you know, so if you're feeling sad, how can you cultivate joy? If you're feeling fear, how do you cultivate courage? If you're feeling whatever, you know, can you just be with the feeling? You know, the feeling is just a feeling. Just be mindful of it. So there's multiple ways, too, of responding to those things. In terms of, like, the political potency of what inner work can do, uh, whether that's how we relate to other people, broadening our relationship and scope to the environment, what do you think, from your perspective as a, as a teacher and someone who's been practicing meditation for a number of decades, like, what the future of meditation can offer or what it will look like? Yeah, so two things. One is um, I feel this is the next frontier is consciousness and the development of consciousness. And, and then also how, how it then percolates out into the world, right? Like as we transform our consciousness or our mind and heart, it then begins to affect how we think and then how we intend and how we act in the world. And then also I, I'm, I'm, ve- I'm very excited if human civilization can turn the corner, um, that um, this this meditation and mind training evolves into, you know, mostly I'm coming out of the frame of Buddhism right now because it's the most coherent um, path that I was able to find. Um, but I'm not fundamentalist about it at all. And so my hope will be that we, we can develop a way of being, practicing in meditation and acting in the world which is multi-modality. So we use science and we use art and we use Buddhist meditation and we use Stoic philosophy and we use whatever is at hand uh, and we avoid any constraint of fundamentalism. And more importantly, individual people are beginning to understand that they need the leverage of training their mind to be able to cope. Mm -hmm. But then further than that, that to go forward during these difficult times, having a strong mind, balanced mind, clear mind, insightful mind, uh, having loving kindness, I feel is critical. And an understanding of the interdependence of everything is critical to solving, um, you you know, income inequality, uh, anti-black racism, you know, just name it. And then then also, uh, especially our relationship to the natural world. If we don't understand the interdependent nature of our connection to the natural world, we, we will perish. 
at least organized human civilization will. So um, I feel like that internal development is going to be critical for us turning that corner. And it's and it and it's not a given. I think we're see simultaneously seeing the development of delusion, misinformation, and 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 you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's going to sound hokey, but everybody's our brothers and sisters, so we've got to bring everybody along. You know, it's it's yeah. uh, you know, if we make people into the enemy, we're we'll be in trouble in the long run. Well, thank you very much, Ken, um, for taking the time to, yeah, just share your, your decades of, of knowledge and experience and hearing your, your personal stories. You're welcome.